0: Our first reading today comes from the book of Joel. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said among the survivors whom the Lord calls. The second reading is from Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, Crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, you will fill me with joy in your Presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them Save yourselves from the corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is God's word.
1: We're going to be considering that uh, passage, Acts chapter 1, or Acts chapter 2, rather, together. Let me pray as we begin. Our Father God, we thank you um, for your word. We thank you that it comes to us with the power of your spirit. And we pray that he would teach us this morning, that he would speak to us and uh, meet each of our needs. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Now we have today a passage in which God has done something astonishing that the whole world can be in on. Anyone can be in on this. But in a gathering like this, my guess is that there are probably at least a couple of groups of people. There there are probably some people here this morning, and uh, all this talk of Jesus of Nazareth, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, all this talk of Jesus seems a bit puzzling and uh, a bit bewildering. So you're here this morning, but but something about Jesus seems still a bit, a bit out there. People talk about him and sing about him in ways that you're not quite ready to. They say, this is my story, this is my song, a bit like the song we just sung. But you couldn't say that yet. And there's something about Jesus that's still a bit puzzling, a bit bewildering. You're not sure what all the fuss is about. But probably the majority of people would be in a different group. The majority of people here this morning, I imagine, are very familiar with Jesus of Nazareth, not puzzled and bewildered by him. In fact, not astonished at all. Maybe you've given up on the prospect of hearing and experiencing anything new in the Christian life. You're far from astonished, and you imagine that there'll be no more astonishment left for you in the Christian life. And, And to each of those groups of people, to any of us, and all of us this morning, we're to know in this passage that God has done astonishing things, And what he's done is he's done an astonishing work that's not just out there, but we'll hear this morning can come in here. So that the Jesus that we hear about and that we've spoken about can be mine, as we've just sung. That what God has done out here can come in here. That's what we're going to think about this morning. Now, uh, it is, of course, uh, the passage uh, that's recorded of the coming of the Spirit, the passage of Pentecost, the event of Pentecost. And that's in verses 1 to 13, we get the event, but we don't stop there. Our reading didn't stop there, it went on, because Pentecost, the event, ended in a puzzle. People were bewildered and puzzled by it. And so we need the word of explanation in verses 14 to 41. We'll sort of look at those verses a bit from a helicopter view. But we need that explanation if that event out there, that astonishing thing, is to be received by us, if indeed the gift of the Spirit is to be received and known that we have received him. So come, uh, come with me to verses one to thirteen, where I want us to notice that the spirit who 's poured out in all that 's what happens at Pentecost, the spirit poured out in all says something, literally says something that God has done something remarkable that the whole world can be in on. you see in verse one that uh, the spirit comes on all who were there, so uh, we 're told that they 're all together, gathered in one place, verse one, and that 's the same group of people in verse four, no exceptions that have the Spirit poured out on them, that are filled with the spirits. So uh, included in that group will be the apostles, will be ordinary Christians, will be Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. Now, old and young, men and women, they all receive, all those in that place, receive the Spirit of God. They're filled with the Spirit. And it's a sensory experience. So the sound of rushing wind from heaven, that's how the Spirit comes, reminiscent of the Old Testament. And he descends like tongues of fire, that separate and eat and, and separate and land on each person, rest on each person's head. But this sensory experience then gives way to another, not the, the sound of wind or the sight of fire, but speech. They speak. All those, verse four, who are filled with the Spirit, they speak. And it's this speech that makes the whole world gather in. It's this speech that astounds the whole world. The whole world is there. Did you see that in verse five? So the whole world is in Jerusalem. They were staying there, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, the whole world represented. And it's festival time, and that's what happens at festival time. It draws people in. It's like Edinburgh this month. There's a group from here who've taken a camper van, and they've driven up to Edinburgh to see the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. That's what festivals do. They, they draw people in, and the whole world has been drawn people in. It's Pentecost. It's the old Jewish wheat harvest. And every nation of the world is represented there. But what gets their notice as they wander through Jerusalem? What draws them in is this speech in verses 6 to 8, this amazing speech. What draws them in is that people who, who didn't know their language, who couldn't know their language because they're from a little backwater called Galilee, and they've never been beyond it, people who couldn't know their language are speaking their language. And you know what it's like when you're, uh, you're somewhere that uh, you're not expecting to hear your language spoken. You're not expecting someone to, to say anything you can understand maybe you're abroad you're walking through a foreign airport and and suddenly you hear an announcement and suddenly you can understand it, and your ears prick up and you instantly know this is this is relevant to me this is meant for me it's been adapted for me and your ears prick up and you listen in and somehow these people who hear their language being spoken even though that there's no earthly reason that it could be however far away they've come they think there is a message they're able to hear a message something that's relevant to them meant for them fitted for them adapted so that they can hear it and receive it verses 9 to 11 tell us that that everyone all the points of the compass are covered in the north and the east round to the south and then the west in Roman Crete but the key verses is, is the end of verse 11 it tells you the content of this speech you see, the thing that uh, pricks their ears up, the thing that's relevant to them, the something remarkable that they're hearing, is the wonders of God. They're hearing the wonders of God, that God has done something amazing, that he's done something remarkable. That's that's what the message of this speech is. When the Spirit fills them, all those in that room, and then it presumably it spills out into the street and draws people in, the word is, a word of God's wonders—that God has done something remarkable—but it, it's not just something remarkable. So this word "wonders" comes up again and again in the Old Testament. And wonders, when God does wonders, there are always works of rescue. So in the Old Testament, the psalmists talk about the wonders of God, and the greatest wonder of the Old Testament is the Exodus, when God rescued His people from Egypt. And so somehow people are able to hear that there is a wonder, a rescue that God has done that is available to, meant for, relevant for anyone and everyone. That's the message that comes at Pentecost. But it's still a puzzle, really, in verse 12. So you see people's response. They're bewildered. They're amazed. It ends with a question. What does this mean? People are either astonished or they're mocking, verse 13. They're filled with something. Maybe they're filled with new wine. But if we're ultimately to grasp what this means, what this puzzle is, if we're ultimately to move from people who are astonished to people who knew and experience and have received this wonder of God, well, then we need the explanation that Peter then stands up and delivers, and he delivers it to us too. So in the words of verse 14, we need to listen carefully to what Peter has said. And I've put on our sheets what I want us to notice from verses 14 to 36 is something very simple. It is that God has made Jesus of Nazareth the Lord that the whole world can turn to. The wonder of God, the something remarkable that God has done is that he has made Jesus of Nazareth the Lord, someone called Lord, that anyone in the world can turn to. At which point it seems that Peter must be playing some strange word association game. So We began verses 1 to 13 thinking about the Spirit, the Spirit poured out, God pouring out his heart on people and people speaking. And then to explain it, the key to unlock it and understand it and receive it is apparently a word about Jesus being Lord. You see in verses 22 to 36, do you see that Peter begins in verse 22 his speech proper with the words, Jesus of Nazareth. Men of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth. And he ends his argument in verse 36 with the conclusion. Jesus of Nazareth is Lord now. God has made this Jesus both Christ and Lord. And the answer to the puzzle, the the key to the word association game, if you like, that, that Peter's talking about, the connection between receiving the Spirit and recognizing Jesus as Lord is shown to us by the prophet Joel. It was talked about long ago in the prophet joel that those are the words that are quoted in verses 17 to 21 now before we uh, we have a look at that passage i want us to just pause for a moment and think about what it is that god pours out his spirit on someone what does that mean it's the greatest privilege a human being could ever have we uh, we talk about um pouring out our heart to someone we let someone in we 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 share with them our innermost concerns and desires We share our heart with them. We withhold nothing from them. And maybe there would be people that you've poured your heart out to. And there is a sense that, that when God poured out his spirit on someone in the Old Testament, he poured out, if you like, with all his life and power, he poured out his innermost concerns. He shared his heart with that person. Now, he did it usually with individual prophets scattered throughout the old testaments prophets like isaiah and jeremiah and he drew them in as it were into his council into his very presence and he spoke words to them he shared his innermost hearts and that is what it's what it meant for him to pour out his spirit to pour out if you like his innermost heart that's something of what it means i think and in the old testament that was only done with a select few if you like it wasn't yet time for God to pour out his heart more widely. But Joel, the Old Testament prophets that we had read, spoke of a day, a future day, called the last days. When God would share, if you like, his innermost heart, he would pour out his spirit, all his life and power, into human beings. And so in verses 17 to 18, this is the quote from Joel, do you see that that's precisely what happened at Pentecost? The event we just heard about in Jerusalem? Do you see that the Spirit said Joel would be poured out on all God's people without distinction, all classes and categories of people. There would be no, no distinction according to age or gender or race or class. None of God's people were excluded. And all the categories of God's people end up prophesying, you know, the sign that they've been drawn into, to God's innermost concerns. They've got a word from him, his secret counsel, if you like. And we've already seen that in verses 1 to 13. We've already seen, if you like, this prediction of Joel come true. Now don't be thrown by uh, by talk of prophecy and visions and dreams in verses 17 and 18. Those are simply Old Testament ways that God drew people into his innermost concerns. Those are Old Testament ways that God, God shared his innermost concerns, poured out his spirit on people. So if you said, look, you know, God has drawn me into his counsel. He has given me a word to speak. He has shared his innermost concerns with me. Well, well, you say, well, what did you dream? What vision did you see? That's how it came to them. But the key thing is the end of verse 18. All these things are speech. They're prophesying. They're, they're having a word from God, a message from God himself. But of course, that is, uh, that's only half the story of Pentecost. We finished on a puzzle and if we stopped at verse 18 of Joel's quote, well, we'd still end on a puzzle. But Joel then goes on to tell us about the wonder of God that this spirit is the sign of. Verse 19 and 20, you see that the prophet Joel had talked about vivid ways that would show God was at work. So all these, uh, cosmic events in the skies, the, the sun turning to darkness, the moon turning to bloods, well, we, we think, well, is this a sort of, um, advance warning of climate change you know it was joel really and al Gore ahead of his time but actually it's not it's not climate change someone has said it's not climate change but climactic change it is a sign of upheaval that that god is at work in the universe doing something remarkable god is so great and glorious that he can't go to work in the universe without causing upheaval like this and these things are really a sign that say god is at work here god is at work that's what those signs are but the thing That god is doing the remarkable thing that he's at work doing do you see in verse 20 is that there will appear in a very obvious way when god has done his work someone called the lord that anyone and everyone can call out to no matter how far away you are no matter if you're part of the select few or the great masses you can call out to that is the marvelous work that god is doing that's the great upheaval that is going on or will go on in the universe and so Peter says that God has been at work and this spirit being poured out is the sign that God has been at work and he's been at work doing one thing, appointing, placing the Lord as the name, as the one who everyone can turn to, to be saved. He is doing a wonder of rescue because he has given a Lord who can rescue people. So um, there is a sense in which we're, we're still perhaps a bit puzzled as to precisely why the Lord's And the Spirit are so connected. Well, if the Spirit is like the the innermost concerns of God, if it's like God sharing his innermost concerns, it has to be that that comes from the Lord, that the Spirit is sent out by the Lord, because the Lord, that name Lord, that is the one who is, if you like, right beside the Lord's heart. He is, if you like, the one closest, nearest to God, so that, of course, if God's going to pour out his heart into you, As a human being, if he's going to share his innermost concerns and heart, well, it's going to be concerns and a heart all about Jesus of Nazareth, the one who is near to his heart. That's really what the argument in verses 22 to 36 is saying. Probably seemed a bit puzzling as we read it. There are a couple of Old Testament quotations. It seems like an argument not related to what's gone before. But we're given the conclusion, and this is really the heart of it in verse 36, that God has made Jesus of Nazareth that Lord. Jesus of Nazareth is the one right by the Lord's heart, at his right hand, in his very presence. So do you see in verse 22, when Jesus of Nazareth was doing doing miracles, when he was on earth walking around uh, healing people, when he was feeding the 5,000, when he was raising people from the dead, when he was calling Lazarus, the dead man, out of a grave, well, what were we to think? Well, people were to think God must be at work Oh, that's a great upheaval. We've never seen the like of that. That is God at work in Jesus of Nazareth. If we want to see where God is at work, we look to Jesus of Nazareth. That's what his miracles said. They were like accreditation by God. I'm at work here. Even verse 23, when we thought God had left the scene and left this man, Jesus of Nazareth, when wicked men had their way and they handed him over to be killed, well, no, verse 23 says, no, even there, God was doing his set purpose and plan. Even in Jesus' death, God is at work. The Gospels tell us about uh, the sun being darkened and around the region of Judea there being darkness for three hours as Jesus is crucified. God is at work. God was at work even when Jesus was dying. And then verse 24 to 35. In this part of the argument, we get, if you like, these two seemingly odd quotes from the Old Testament king David. And verses 24 to 32 are really saying that if you're going to be in the presence of God, if you're going to be the one near to his heart, this one called Lord, well, you can't stay in the grave. It goes without saying that, that you can't stay dead. You can't stay in the grave. And David had said in Psalm 16, which is quoted there in verses 25 to 28, he said that to be in the presence of God, the Christ would rise again from the dead. Verse 27, he would end up, verse 27, he would rise from the grave and he would end up in the presence of God. Verse 28. And Peter picks up this quote and he says, verse 29, do you know, there's a cemetery, there's a grave, there's a tomb in Jerusalem. You can go to it. You can go and visit it to this day. And it says on it, here lies King David. Because King David, when he said those words, he wasn't talking about himself. He was, as prophets do, looking ahead and prophesying about the resurrection of the Christ to come even though in a sense David was that Christ, he prophesied of the true Christ to come, the one who was near the Lord's heart, the one who would be at God's right hands. So verse 31, David had spoken of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. And Peter, who went to that empty tomb, who ran there and saw that it was empty, who saw and touched Jesus' risen body, he's a witness of the resurrection, just as all the other apostles are. And he says, yes, this is true of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is the one that God, who is dear and near to God's hearts. And the proof is that he's been so determined to have him at his right hand, at the place closest to him. And then to complete the argument, to prove that he is that one closest to God, he's been given the crowning gift the Spirit of God, God's innermost heart, if you like. So do you see that when Peter says that God gave the Spirit to Jesus of Nazareth, who then poured it out on people at Pentecost, do you see that the Spirit isn't the the icing on the cake? No, the Spirit is the greatest thing God could give. The Spirit is his very self, given to Jesus of Nazareth. Proof, telltale proof, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord's the one nearest to the Lord's heart, to God's heart. The gift of the Spirit, if you like, is, is so precious and important and glorious that the Spirit is the gift that can only exchange hands in heaven, in the very presence of God, in the throne room. And this whole argument has been building up to say, and that's precisely what God has done. He has made Jesus of Nazareth this Lord. He has said in this last quote from Psalm 110, again in a way that David didn't speak of himself, but of Jesus Christ, God has said and appointed Jesus Christ to be Lord at his right hand. He has given him everything, his spirit, and he has given him the whole world. So uh, at the end of Peter's argument, Peter's sermon, he he builds up to this conclusion in verse 36. And I want to press home to us in verses 37 to 41 what this means for us as Peter did then. But before we get there, just, just pause in verse 36 and consider what that means. It means God has made clear. He has given us assurance. He has made certain that Jesus of Nazareth is Lord. Jesus of Nazareth is the name that Joel talked about, that people could turn to and be saved. He is the proof, if you like, that God has done something remarkable that anyone and everyone can be in on. So our ears are to prick up when we hear that Jesus of Nazareth has been appointed as Lord. It's relevant to each of us, available to each of us, Now, we might think that uh, that that's good news, good news of rescue. We've talked about that this morning, how wonderful the news is. But it doesn't produce good feelings, first of all. It creates a crisis in verses 36 and verse 37. So as we come to, to these verses, we're to see that all and any are to call on Jesus of Nazareth to send his spirit of rescue. But we face first a crisis, and it's a crisis that needs to be resolved because these people crucified this Lord. Their contribution to the one near to God's heart was to kill him. Now, uh, I, want to, uh, I want to talk to us for a moment uh, about something a bit different, about Cyclops. Cyclops, which I'm sure is uh, a mythical giant you've all heard of. Cyclops was uh, well-known in the Greek world. Homer spoke about him in uh, his blockbuster, The Odyssey. And he talked about Cyclops as this brutish giant's He was a monster who had, um, where his eyes should have been, he had had no eyes, but instead he had one eye in the middle of his head. And uh, Homer describes him as that that monster who does lawlessness. And uh, this brute uh, cyclops would live in a cave. And uh, because he had one eye, he would think he could see, but in fact he couldn't. He would group around blind with his arms outstretched in his cave, swiping at, killing whoever would come in. Without regard to who he killed... Uh, he was a bloodthirsty, British monster. And he is the, uh, the ugliest, most gruesome, most brutish giant, I think, in all of Greek mythology. But uh, later on in the book of Acts, something remarkable happens. The Apostle Paul, when he's speaking in a sermon to the, the most sophisticated and respectable people, Greek people of the day, he refers, he uses a, a reference to Cyclops to describe humankind's natural relationship to God. It's the most unflattering picture you could think of. Because you see, he says that uh, that human beings, when it comes to God, however sophisticated and respectable we would think we are, when it comes to things of God, we're like cyclops. We, We think we see clearly, but actually we're brutish and blind. We do things we don't realize, that we think are okay, and we've no idea what we're doing. And these people who knew So much of God, more than we could know, these men and women of Israel, these Jewish people, even they discover that they've done an awful thing, that they've done a brutish thing, that they've been brutish and blind to the ways of God, and they have killed Jesus of Nazareth. That's the crisis in verse 37. What shall we do? They're cut to the heart. They've seen that there's a great gulf between what they thought they were like and what God says they were like. And the answer is, what is the solution to that? What is the solution to that crisis? And the answer is to repent. The answer is to turn around to the very one that they had killed. It is a remarkable thing of grace that the very one who shows up, human beings, you and I, as being brutish and blind to the things of God is the very one we can turn to to be rescued, the very one we can turn to to be saved. And I want to say that we share in this crisis. So even though we weren't in there in Jerusalem, even though we didn't hand Jesus over to be crucified, even though these people's, this people's anxiety and sense of crisis, it's, it's very acute. I want to say that we share in it. We share, if you like, that characteristic of humankind that naturally we know nothing of the purpose of God. Naturally, when God comes to our world, we would put him to death. And the clue that we share in this crisis is Jesus' death. Why else would God have had the one near to his heart die on a cross? Why else would he have allowed him to be handed over and crucified? You see, Jesus' death shows that the Jewish people here, the great gulf that there is between God and them naturally. And Jesus' death does the same thing for us. We're to look at Jesus' death and think, why else did Jesus die? except that we were so brutish and blind to the things of God that we needed to be rescued, that we needed to be saved. So will we confess today that actually all we contribute to the purposes of God, naturally, is our sin and our wickedness? That actually, naturally, Jesus' death shows up exactly what we're like. It's like a mirror held up to our life. And Jesus of Nazareth, that he had to die, shows us exactly what we are like by nature. But come with me to verse 38, because the solution, the, uh, the good news, the wonderful thing God has done is that he has given us a name. It's the same name, Jesus of Nazareth, that we can invoke, call upon, anyone can call upon, to be saved. Now, repent is simply to turn to him. It is to call on his name. It is to cry out to him, as the Lord. To recognize that Jesus of Nazareth is, is not someone to be pushed aside and thrust aside. But rather he is the one who is near to God's heart. And that's what it is to repent. It's a gift. The book of Acts describes repentance as the gift that leads to life. And that's what repentance is. It is having a name to turn to. It is having the name of Jesus of Nazareth to turn to. And whether this morning we're turning to him for the first time. Or for the hundredth time for it'll never end in our christian life that we keep turning to him we are to know that jesus christ is the mirror yes who shows us our need of him but he is also the one who sends his rescue to us because there's no pause do you see between repenting and being baptized there's no gap so the assurance for us this morning the assurance for repentant hearts here this morning is that you are washed with the spirit the rescue of jesus out out here can come into our hearts because as we turn and call to the lord we turn and call to the one who can pour out the very heart of god the spirit the person of the holy spirit into our hearts he can if you like send his rescue his personalized rescue to each of us to wash us clean that's what it brings forgiveness of sins do you see our wickedness our sins washed clean And this is, if you like, when our ears prick up. We realize it's relevant to us. It's fitting for us. God has appointed Jesus of Nazareth for anyone and everyone. And so we're to know that if we've turned to him, and as we turn to him, we have received and receive his spirit. God pouring out his innermost heart to us. And as we close, I want to leave us with an image, a picture of of what this means for us as believers, to have the, the Spirit of God poured into our hearts. Well, because he's the Spirit of the Lord, well, what's the content that's, if you like, poured into our heart? It's life and power and God's presence, but for what and about what? Well, it is as though when the Spirit is poured into our heart, it's like the, the inner walls of our heart, if you like, are imprinted with Jesus' life and, and death and resurrection and ascension. the the truth and the reality that, that Jesus is the one near to the Lord's heart, God's right hand. And the Spirit, when he comes into us, when he's poured into us, if you like, imprints that upon us so that in life and power and with power, we can live in imitation of and declaring and witnessing to Jesus of Nazareth. For the Spirit we've received is the Spirit from the Lord and of the Lord. And it's in that very power, it's because of that very life that the book of Acts records people turning the world upside down. And we'll see more of that as we go on. But we're to know today that as we've received the Spirit, we've received the Spirit from the Lord and of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we praise you that at your right hand is seated the Lord Jesus. We praise you that you've withheld nothing from him and that you've given him your spirit. And we praise you that uh, the Lord Jesus has poured out that spirit upon us. We praise you that uh, we have the very words and counsel of you that you bring rescue to men and women like us. For this we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.